you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 20. Um, we are coming into the home stretch of Revelation. Uh, next week will be Revelation 21. Ben is actually going to be preaching that. Uh, remember, I gave all the fun passages away. And so uh, Chris got to do the wedding ceremony. He gets to do the bride coming down. I get stuck with the judgment. Um, and then we will do, so we'll do 21. We'll do two in chapter 22. And then we're going to do kind of a, a summary sermon. Uh, there are seven times the word blessed appears in Revelation. And so we're going to walk through those seven blessings. And so that's going to be then how we, we bring Revelation to an end. Uh, I know that preaching through this book has now brought extreme clarity to you in Revelation. And you know exactly the way it all plays out and how it works. However... If you're a small minority and you now have more questions and you're more confused than ever, uh, on February 13th, it's a Wednesday night, not this Wednesday, but next Wednesday, uh, Chris and I are foolishly going to seek to try to answer many of your questions. And so it's just going to be a night. Come ask whatever you want. By all means, we are not saying we will be able to answer all of your questions. Uh, And it's not like a, a debate time. It's a what about this? What about this? What does this mean? Or, hey, you said this, or now, what about this? And so we just want to wrestle through that. So if you have any question at all regarding Revelation or anything about as we move towards the return of Christ and what that looks like, or as we're in today and we're going to jump into the millennium, which is the most debated thing, like in all church history, uh, if you want to come talk about that, February 13th, 7 o'clock, I get the easy questions, uh, but Chris gets the hard questions, right? I don't think those people Other way. Uh, so, so I just want to encourage you, just come. It'll be fun. Uh, I have no idea. I mean, I know some of the questions you've had, but I have no idea what you might bring. And I just think it'd be fun for us to just go, okay, what does that look like? And let's just look in the Word together. So, uh, but... With all that, we're going to jump into chapter 20. I'm excited about this text. It's, it's going to be fun, I think, uh, I hope. Uh, so Revelation chapter 20, we're just going to go ahead and dig in, and then we'll start talking about it. So I'm going to ask you to stand. We stand as we read the Word of God. We do that because it comes from God with His full authority, full inspiration. Is it, it is inerrant and infallible in every way, and it is for the building up of the church, the correcting, the training of us for righteousness. So as we look at this, this is training us today in righteousness and how that we would live for Christ. And so chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were, were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not recognized its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were, were ended. This is the first resurrection. 
Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. That is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Let's pray. Father, Father, help today as we dig into this text. Lord, this is hard. There's many questions. There's many things that get brought up. But Lord, may we see the truth that is presented before us. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be with us would guide us, would give us instruction. God, may this text be used to give us greater unity together as a body of believers as we realize and as we better know that you are king and that there is a day in which you are coming and there is a day in which all evil and all wickedness will be judged and done away with. God, may we look forward to that day. May we know with great confidence that our names are in the Lamb's book of life. God, I pray that we would know that and no one here today would leave without knowing their name is written in the book. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. So our text is broken up into four four sections. And and if you have headings in your Bible, this is usually, uh, sometimes those are helpful, sometimes they aren't. This one is, they're actually pretty helpful. Verses 1, 2, and 3, verses 4 through 6, verses 7 through 10, verses 11 through 15. And we're going to walk through each of uh, these sections kind of one by one. And the title today is Fearless. That, that's going to be our title. And the whole thing that I want us to see is because our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, we can risk everything. That's what it wants to see. This, this Revelation 20, this chapter, is a battle cry for the church to stand firm and that we would fearlessly go out into this world and that we would boldly share the gospel. And so, uh, largely, I'm going to give four reasons, one reason for each section of the text of why we can fearlessly risk our lives for the gospel. So number one, Satan is bound. And we're going to stay in this point just a little bit longer because we are going to have to define the thousand years and, and how we're going to wrestle through with that. So uh, the other points won't be quite as long as this one. In verses 1, 2, and 3, we see that an angel comes down from heaven, seizes Satan, chains him up, throws him into a bottomless pit, and seals it. So that's clear, right? 
So we'll, we'll, we'll try to unpack that. The word bottomless pit or abyss, as it might appear in your Bible, depending on what version you have, uh, it's used nine times in Revelation. It's likely synonymous for death in Hades. Very, very likely that's what it's synonymous for. In verse 2, we see there's four names used for Satan. We have dragon, ancient serpent, the devil, and of course, Satan. And, and we'll, we'll come back to those four names in a few minutes. Uh, and we'll say more about that there. But notice why Satan is bound in verse 3. So he will no longer deceive the nations. So the binding is a preventing of him from deceiving the nations. And how long is he bound? He's bound for a thousand years. And we're told that when the thousand years is up, he's released for a short period of time in order to deceive the nation. So the binding prevents the deceiving. At the end of time, there'll come a short period where there's this deceiving that will take place. Um, the word, and of course, we see this all last for a thousand years. Uh, and that, that thousand years, that millennium time, it's used six times here in Revelation. Now, it's really not used anywhere else in the Bible. So it's, it's exclusive to this small portion of the Bible. And so that's where there's a lot of debate and sometimes a lot of confusion that comes in. And this is one of the most debated, divided, or divisive passages that have ever been experienced within the church. Um, different denominations have started because of the way people will see their, this passage. Um, now, I would say that we need to be very careful with that. John was not writing this to cause division. John was writing this for comfort, for hope, and to strengthen the church. So we need to make sure we're going at this for unity, not division. Um, and really, all the debate hinges on when this thousand-year period takes place. Uh, some people believe it's an actual thousand years. So exactly 365 days times a thousand, that's what they think it will be. Most most will agree that it's symbolic of a period of time, a long period of time. The word 10, or the number 10, remember in Revelation, numbers are all symbolic. And so the number 10 is a, is a symbolic number for completeness. So if you have 10 times 10 times 10, you have a, a long, perfect, complete period of time. So for this long, perfect, complete period of time, Satan will be bound. And so he, here are kind of the options for, for how people go about this. Number one, some people believe that Jesus will come before the millennium. So they call that the premillennium. So that's what, that's what that means. Some people believe Jesus will come after the millennium. So that's post-millennium. See, they're very creative with these titles. So they're informative. You know where they're at. Um, and of course, under each of those are, are different views and breakdowns of how they work. Um, and another one, which is a form of post-millennialism, but it needs to be separated because um, it is also quite different from it, it, is one that would say that the current age, this age in which we live in, is the millennium now. Uh, now, there are amazing, biblically sound, Christ-centered, God-exalting theologians in every one of these views. Every one of these views has just solid guys. That it, it really, if you went to their church, unless they preached in this text, you might not actually ever know which position that they have. Um, I could happily attend a church that would preach um, many of the positions that would be filled in these. 
Um, so I say that all, we definitely don't want to be divided. We don't ever want to bring a spirit of division. When we're in a text like this, now your answer to when, uh, to when you believe the millennium is, is really determined by two questions. Uh, number one, what is the chronological relationship between chapters 19 and 20? So how you see the relationship between 19 and 20 will greatly depend upon when you see the millennium taking place. Does 19 take, or does, does chapter 19 take place 1,000 years before chapter 20? That would be majority, pre, that would be premillennialism. Um, is chapter 19 a symbolic period of time in which the church, through the proclamation of the world, conquers the kingdoms of the world and ushers in an unprecedented time of peace that will then lead to judgment? That would be post-millennialism. Uh, so that, that would be a view. Or are these two chapters viewed as the same event from different angles? The next question would be, what is the general condition on earth during the thousand years. So first one, what's the relationship between 19 and 20? And then the second one, what's the condition? Is it characterized by peace, by prosperity, by, by great joy in that type of sense? Or is it largely characterized by persecution and tribulation? So the way you answer those, uh, which you would do so from Revelation and then from other texts in the Bible, will inform on where you believe the millennium actually takes place. I want to tell you what I believe. Now, I have to do this because I'm preaching the text. If you're not preaching the text, you don't have to say what you believe at this moment. But there's no way you can preach the text without taking a position, unless if every single verse, I would say, now for pre, post, all mill, this is what takes place. And we would all be incredibly confused and nobody would be helped at all. Uh, So I have to take a position. And if it's not your position, that's fine. Um... You'll get there one day. No. Um, uh, <laughs> 13th, you can come with all your questions. Um, I will say, for me personally, I was sitting in seminary, and I had, you know, I had only knew one view, like my entire life. And I'm sitting in seminary, and within the last few minutes of one of the days, the professor totally destroyed my entire view of what I thought was going to take place. Basically, he did that by opening up my eyes to all these other views, which sent me into a spiral of having no clue what I believed. And so for the next three, four, five years, um, it just it became kind of like this little hobby of my, okay, I got to figure this out. Like, what do I believe? Um, and so I just began to study and to study and to study and became much more, became much more familiar with the other views. Uh, and so that's where I am now. So that's just the course that I took. So maybe today is going to be the day like it was for me in seminary for you, where all of a sudden you're like, there's more views, there's this, there's that. Now I have no idea what I believe. That's where I was, and sometimes still feel like I am. Um, but here we go. So I believe the thousand years is a symbolic reference to the present church age. I believe that is the time we live in now. I believe chapters 19 and 20 are describing the same event from different angles. I believe that we are in the millennium and that Satan is bound at this moment. And therefore, I believe the millennium, and this is characteristic to this position alone, I believe that the millennium is characterized by suffering and persecution of the church. 
So that is the position I will take as we go through here. Uh, and, and if you're going, oh, great. I don't believe in this at all. At least now you'll know how I've come to this. Now, this sermon is not a defense of my position, but it's simply you'll see why I believe as we go through the text. So that's why this point is longer than the other ones. We have to unpack some of that. Uh, now we'll dig back in. Verse 3. We see that the sealing of Satan prevents him from deceiving the nations. Now, in verses 7 through 9, we see what happens when he's released. We see that he deceives the nations. But what does that mean? What does that look like? Some people would say, well, the, deceive, or the binding of Satan means he has no influence now. He, he's bound. He can't affect anything. They would take a very literal sense to that binding. But in verses 7 through 9, we see what it means for him to be unbound when he is unbound he will gather the nations together all those who have rejected christ for the purpose of gathering against the church against christ to make war on them his purpose is to eradicate the church which i was as we've gone through revelation we've seen these things where uh, like in chapter 13 or in chapter 11 where it says and it will appear that satan has conquered the church So we have these glimpses throughout Revelation of a very short period of time where it looks as if Satan has conquered the church, which is what I believe takes place at the unbinding of Satan. Now the Gentiles are gathered together for a unified effort for the destruction of the church. Um, And didn't we just see an episode that looked like that in chapter 19? Chapter 20 says the nations will gather to fight. Chapter 19, what do we have? It's a battle scene where the nations are gathered to do what? To wage war against Christ and his church, which is why I believe chapter 20 and 19 are just the same event from different angles. Chapter 19, let me even back up. Chapters 17 and 18 talk the, or describe the destruction of Babylon. Chapter 19 describes the destruction of uh, the beast and the false prophet. Chapter 20 describes the destruction of Satan. Do you see how this has happened? It's a systematic uh, um, destroying of the false trinity and the false bride. That's what's being laid out here. Um, Chapter 20 focuses on the destruction of Satan. So when the text says that Satan is bound, I don't, I don't, I don't take that, that he can do nothing, but that, um, and that he has zero influence on the present age. But I believe it means he cannot stop the proclamation of the gospel going forth into the nations so that people will be saved. That's what I believe is the binding is referring to. Because he is bound, the gospel will go forth, and there will be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and language uh, that will be saved. And so if that is right, and I'll say if that is right, and verses 1 through 3 reveals that right now, the church is divinely protected by God for the sake of preaching the gospel. That's how I see this as is, is playing out. And I'll give you five reasons for how I see the church is protected. And we could have gone more, but, you know, I thought five was enough. Um, I'll give you two from Revelation, two from the Gospels, and one from the book of Acts. Two pictures, are, we're given two pictures in Revelation, um, are in addition to chapter 20, that I believe show the church is protected. Uh, the first one, well, the first one I'll mention is chapter 12. Chapter 12 is very similar to chapter 20. 
In chapter 12, we have the four names of Satan that are used in chapter 20, also used in chapter 12. In chapter 12, we see that when Jesus goes to the cross, where he's killed and and rises again, that we are told that Satan is defeated. He is thrown down, and he's no longer able to accuse the church, able to accuse the brothers. We see that he is upset at this, and he knows his time is short, therefore he pours his wrath against the church. And it's described as a wall of water coming from the church. Remember that? In chapter 12, this water is coming against the church. And it looks like, oh man, the church is going to be destroyed. And then before this water comes, the ground opens up and swallows up the water. Thus, the church is protected. We're told she goes into the wilderness where she will be nourished and taken care of by God. So we have this uh, sign of protection of the church. The other picture I see is in chapter 11, where we are told that there are two witnesses. Remember that? These two witnesses, which we walk through, say they represent the church. They are to proclaim the gospel. And as there is opposition that comes against them, Old Testament language that was used to describe what the prophets did, it says that fire comes from them and destroys their enemies. Now we know that the church does not breathe fire. Unless if you have some spiritual gift that we are unaware of. But, um, but it's Old Testament language. Like when Elijah was being, uh, was being summoned by uh, one of the kings and he brought fire down to destroy those who would come towards him. And so here we see God divinely protects the church until the very point where Satan is then released, which we see at the end of chapter 11, and for a short period of time, it looks as if the church has been destroyed. So we have those two pictures in Revelation where we see this protecting in addition to chapter 20. Now, to go to the Gospels. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out 72 disciples. They go proclaim the kingdom of God. As they come back, they're celebrating. They're saying, man, did you see this? Did you see this? We were seeing demons cast out. This is amazing. Jesus says, in response to the proclamation of the kingdom of God, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He says, I I saw him lose his power. I saw him get cast down, which is what we read about in Revelation 12, and what I believe is this binding that takes forth. Another one in the gospel, so this would be number four, Mark chapter three, Jesus casts out demons. And do you remember what happens? People start going, how can he cast out demons? Surely Satan is divided against himself. And Jesus answers and says, no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then he may plunder his house. Well, what's he talking about? Jesus is coming and casting out demons. He has bound Satan, who is the strong man. He has bound him and he is casting out demons. He's plundering his kingdom and so here in the gospels jesus is saying satan is bound through the proclaiming of the word and so now in revelation we see also there's this binding that takes place the other reason that i would go is is to acts chapter or just the book of acts and we could look at a lot of different pictures in acts but i'll just kind of leave it in general go read all of acts um In the Old Testament, we see that primarily Israel, and only a remnant within Israel, actually believes in the true God. Largely, 
The gospel does not go forth to the Gentile nations. We see sporadically individuals come to know uh, the true uh, God. But really, other than Nineveh coming to know uh, the true God in, in the book of Jonah, we don't see any mass movement of uh, the proclamation of the one true God going out into the world. But as soon as what? Jesus comes, dies, and rises. The church goes forth. And what happens? People are coming to know Christ everywhere and when satan persecutes the church when when we have stephen stoned and all these other things are happening in the book of acts what happens it goes further and further and further into the world the gospel does satan is unable to prevent the spread of the gospel the binding that we see in the old testament in which the gospel did not move through the nations is now happening at a rapid rate in the new testament uh is what we see. And you could go to like Acts 14, 16, where they talk about uh, what the difference between Old Testament and New Testament. So, for those reasons and more, I believe that the binding of Satan is now. So what does all that mean? Well, it means that Satan cannot prevent the spread of the gospel. The binding doesn't mean he's powerless, but it means he can't stop the gospel going into all the nations. The world can roar, the nations can persecute the church, but they cannot stop the church from persecuting, uh, from preaching the truth of the gospel. Do you know that? I mean, that's, that's what we see, right? In fact, regularly I've been bringing forth testimonies that we're reading about in India and other parts of the world about how the gospel keeps going forth. Jesus at the cross has conquered Satan in death. He's disarmed them. He's bound them. That's the, that's the language that takes place in Colossians chapter 2. The gospel has the power to save so we can fearlessly and boldly go into the nations proclaiming. In fact, chapter 7, remember in chapter 7 of Revelation, we're given this amazing picture of people from every tribe, of every tongue, of every nation, of every language, eventually gathering around the throne. And what are they doing? They're worshiping God. It's a picture of of the end. We know how the end is going to come. We know what it's look like, what it looks like. We know that as the gospel goes forth, it will bear fruit. Why? Because Satan is bound and he can't stop it. Because at the cross, Jesus has defeated him, disarmed him, bound him, and he cannot do anything, not even in his persecution of the church. In fact, his persecution of the church seems to propel the church even farther into this world so that the gospel would go places that it could not go otherwise. This passage, it's not meant to cause division. It's meant to strengthen us. It's meant to set a fire underneath the church, underneath us, so that we would know we can proclaim the gospel and nothing will prevent it. Nothing can stop it. This passage gives us confidence that right now Satan's kingdom is being plundered through the proclaiming of the gospel. As the gospel is spoken, people will believe. That's how I see we read this verses 1, 2, and 3. Now you might say, well, what about this persecution? I mean, there's many countries closed to the gospel. It looks like Satan's very active right now. And if we go into these places, it looks like um, we'll most likely die. We'll risk our lives for it. And so that brings us to the point that we come through next in verses 4 through 6. Death has been defeated. We can fearlessly risk our lives because Satan is bound. And death, 
Death is not something we need to fear. It has been defeated. So in verses 4 through 6, we go to this heavenly scene. And we know it's a heavenly scene because John sees thrones. Thrones all throughout Revelation refer to heaven. And who are on those, stone, uh, on those thrones? We see it's the souls of those who have been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and for those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received the mark on their foreheads or their hands. So who does, who does John see? Christians, saints, who have been martyred and have died. Now is this a sad, depressing scene? Is John, is John creating a, 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 a scene of gloom here? No, rather, it's one of victory, the way he writes it. Those who know Jesus, however they die, whether it's through martyrdom or natural causes, what do they do? They, right now, reign with Christ. They're seated with Him on the thrones. And how long? For a thousand years. So this binding that takes place and this reigning that takes place happens at the same time for this thousand years. And so, if position I'm taking, it would mean now. That means that the saints who have gone before us right now are reigning with Christ in heaven. It's a sign of victory is what he's giving us here. Now you might say, you might say, okay, back in chapter 6 though, back in chapter 6 we got this picture of the the saints. Remember, that's the six seals um, that we look at there. And I think it's the fifth seal The saints are under an altar, and they're crying out to God, Oh God, when will you bring us justice? When will you vindicate us? And they don't look very victorious there, do they? Underneath an altar, presented as this sacrifice before God. But let me remind you this, and this is good to know. Revelation is full of paradoxes. Chapter 5. Jesus is the lamb who was slain, and yet he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Which one is he? He's both. He's this victorious lion, and he's the lamb that was slain. Satan is a fire-breathing dragon, and yet he's bound. The church is persecuted, and yet victorious. And the saints in heaven that cry from under the altar for justice are also the very ones who sit on the thrones around the king, crying out, victory in Christ. They're awaiting the day of judgment where Christ will come and gather the church and judge Satan. There's a lot of paradoxes that we have as we come into Revelation. So yes, chapter 6 doesn't quite look as victorious, but here in chapter 20, oh man, here's another angle, another way to look at it. And oh, they're very, very victorious. And John says in verse 5, this is the first resurrection now this is a whole another can of worms what's the first resurrection well again it depends on when you think this is and what's happening here Um, i do not believe the first resurrection is physical our physical resurrection where we will receive our glorified bodies according to paul in first corinthians 15 will take place when christ returns and all of the church is glorified together glorification is not your glorification it's not your individual event it is the church glorified together for the purpose of being joined with the groom does that make sense It is not you, and then you, and then you, or or the order in which we die. It is 
corporately together. We will be glorified and we will be uh, receive, go from the perishable to the imperishable bodies in which we will then dwell with Christ forever. And just as glorification is corporate, what you'll see as we come through, ultimate judgment is corporate as well. So these are, are two events that happen for all of the bride of Christ and for all those who have rejected Christ. So the first resurrection, as I see here, does not refer to physical, but rather it refers to, and this gets confusing and there's a lot of positions on here, uh, it's spiritual. It's when we come to know Christ, we are raised with Christ. Do you know that? Jesus says in John 10, I think it's John 10, I am the resurrection and the life. In Romans 5, no, Romans 6, it says, the one who believes in Christ, death has no dominion over him. In, first, in Colossians chapter 3, he says, since you, if you believe in Christ, since you have believed in Christ, you have been raised with Christ. The New Testament, from cover to cover, speaks as believers right now reigning with Christ. Now, in in our bodies here, and spiritually, we are positioned with Christ right now. And now, as John sees it, I think he's looking primarily at those who have gone before us, and he's looking at those who have been martyred, those who have believed in Christ, are now with Christ as well. And so the first first resurrection, I would say, is, is spiritual. It begins... It begins at our regeneration. It begins when we believe in Christ. And as John is seeing it here, it's lived out where those who have trusted in Christ, when they die, we don't go into some holding state like waiting to be with Jesus. We go be with Jesus right now, which is why Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.8 says, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Do you hear that? Paul says, I'd rather be away from the body and with the Lord. Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ, to die is gain. So how is it that being away from this body is good? How is it that death is gain? How is that? It's not if we go into some holding cell waiting to be with Jesus, but it's what John sees right here, that we are now in the presence with God. And because, remember in Revelation 1, Jesus holds the keys, holds the keys of death in Hades, We don't need to fear death. But right now, when you believe in Christ, you begin to experience life with Him. And that grows into our culmination that when we die, we go be with Him, which even gets sweeter for when Christ returns and we will glorify, we will physically and physical bodies be with Him for all of eternity. And so that's what I think the first resurrection is. So you might be confused now. Perfect. Uh, But if you look at verse 6, it says, We are blessed to share in this resurrection. Why? Go to verse 6. Look at that. It says, you're blessed because whoever shares in this first resurrection, the second death has no power. We'll talk about the second death in a few moments. That's, that's the lake of fire. That's hell. Whoever has the first resurrection, so what is that? That's believing in Christ. That's being positioned with Christ. That's seating on the thrones with Christ. If that's you, you are blessed. For when you die, you will not ever taste the wrath of God. Because you are seated with him on the thrones. What I pray is that this verse would recalibrate our minds on how we think about death. It is not something we need to fear. Do you know that? We do not 
need to fear death. Now, I don't say that meaning we don't shed tears when family members die. We're not looking forward to torturous types of death like the apostles and many saints have experienced. But, just like Polycarp, which was John's disciple in the second century, we can boldly face death. He's 86 years old. He's arrested. He's told to recant his faith. He says no. They tie him to a stake. They light the mat. They light the wood around him and says, you either recant or you burn and die. And he says, no, I will not. Fearless. Why? Because he knows who he is. He knows where he is going. He knows that there is no wrath for him. He knows that he is already in the throne room of God. And so what do all these truths do for us? They free us. They free us to what? To live for Christ. It tells us that if we boldly share the gospel and risk our lives, we need not fear death. It only serves to bring us into the presence of Christ. This passage frees us from playing it safe. Well, I'll be a missionary when my kids grow up. Well, I'll start living for Christ when this happens. Well, let's only go to places where there's no persecution. Well, if we go on this mission trip, like it's 110% safe, right? Because like Jesus wouldn't want us to go to anywhere unsafe. But what does this passage do? It's meant to help a persecuted church, believers who are under the fire of Rome at that moment to stand firm and go, we can keep standing firm. We can lock arms. We need not be afraid because we can share the gospel. And the, re- the reality is, do we actually risk anything? If you've been promised everything and death doesn't obstruct those promises, do we really risk anything? When he says, look, die is gain. I'd rather be away from the body and be with Christ. So go, proclaim the gospel. And yeah, when you go into persecution, what do we need to fear? They can't touch our identity in Christ. They can't remove us from the throne room of God. So we can live the truth. We can be fearless. We can every day share the gospel. And I would say every day we ought to pray, God, help me to share the gospel today. Help me to be bold at work. Help me to be bold in my neighborhood. Help me to be bold in whatever position I am. Help me to be willing to go into other countries to share the gospel. And let's just let the chips fall where they will. If we die, we die. And I don't say that callous. Well, you know, it doesn't matter. No. But if we die, we die. And we die faithful to Christ, knowing that at death we are with Christ. We do not need to fear death. We cannot play it safe. If you actually want Christ to return, according to the word, it will only be when the nations are are reached. And how are we going to get to the nations? It's going to be by going. And guess what? All the easy ones are taken. It's only the hostile ones that are left. It's only the hostile ones. There will be more martyrdom. But just as we see all throughout church history, it's the blood of the martyrs that plants the seed of the gospel that later bears fruit and which we are seeing now all over the world. Like we said, I think it was, was it last week? 5,500 believers came to know Christ this last year in, in Asia. And that was just with one of the missionary movements that we're aware of. I'm sure there's many, many more. But 5,500 came to know Christ. There are people going right now to unreached villages in India and in other parts of the world sharing the gospel so we get to the day Christ returns. Many of them are risking their lives. All of them are risking their lives. But they're not risking their identity in Christ. 
They're not risking their inheritance. They're living it out because they know when they're with, they know that not even death separates them. So it gets kind of heavy. But what we see in this passage is this is the kind of fearless living that we can have. And we can do this because we know Satan is not only defeated, but a day is coming where he will be judged. And that's what we see next in verses 7 through 10. Look at that. Verses 7 through 10, we see what happens when the thousand years are over. We see Satan's released to deceive the nations. And this is what we understand. He will gather all the nations of the earth. That's what it means when it says four corners. Four corners refers to, four regularly refers to all of earth. So the four corners of earth, he's gathering all the Gentile nations of the earth. And what's he doing? They're waging war against God. And what we see is verse 8, will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. Well, what does that mean? So I'll just encourage you, go read Ezekiel 38 and 39 later. That, that's what this reference is to. So Gog, Magog is actually the place. Gog is the king of this place. Um, and what we see in Ezekiel is that there's going to be this mighty war that one day all the nations will come and gather against God's people. There will be a great battle, and it says that the, these nations, they will storm against the church like a giant storm. They will, they will be like giant clouds coming around God's people to bring down death and destruction. But then, in chapters 38 and 39, what we read, God will defend his people. There will be a great earthquake. There will be mighty hailstones. The enemy will be struck down with a sword. Fire will destroy them. And birds will come and gorge themselves on the flesh of the enemy. That's what you read in chapters 38 and 39 of Ezekiel. And in a lot more words too. But, didn't we just see that happen in chapter 19? Chapter 19 all these armies gather around to make a war against Christ and His church. Jesus shows up with a sword, cuts them all down. Birds come, gorge themselves on the flesh of the enemy. Clearly, clearly an allusion to Ezekiel 38 and 39. So we've already seen this happen. This is why I say these are the same event, different angles. If chapter 20 here's, takes place 1,000 years later, why are they both shown to be the fulfillment of the same passage in Ezekiel? That's a tough one for other positions, I think, to wrestle with. They're both shown to fulfill Ezekiel 38 and 39. How, if they're separated by a thousand years? If chapter 20, or if 19, is where God's wrath is satisfied, and we see that it's the end of the seventh bowl, which is clearly what chapter 19 is, so God's wrath is now satisfied in chapter 19. What wrath is left for a thousand years later? What wrath is left? It was satisfied. He comes clearly. That is the culmination of the wrath of God. When Christ appears and strikes down the enemies, throws the false beast, the beast and the false prophet, what, what wrath is left? We were told his wrath will be satisfied. Those are questions that have to be wrestled with. So again, I don't think we're supposed to see two wars. We see one war. They both fulfill Ezekiel 38 and 39. They're given from different perspectives. And the good news is, we see the enemy, the entire false trinity, has been thrown into the lake of fire. And notice the lake of fire is not annihilation. It's not nothingness. 
but it's constant torment. Verse 10, it says they will be tormented day and night forever. This is hell. Hell is the full fury of God poured out for all eternity on those who reject him. And don't miss this. Who's ruling over hell? Not Satan. He's a prisoner. He's being tormented. This is God's wrath. God rules over hell, over the lake of fire, pouring out his eternal, eternal wrath and fury on those who have rejected him. So what we have is stand firm, church. We can persevere. We can fearlessly and boldly risk our lives for the sake of the gospel. Why? Because we know death won't separate us. We know Satan is bound. We know there will be people who will come when we preach the gospel. And there's a day coming in which it's all going to be over. At that time, persecution, when, when Satan is released, persecution will increase for a short period. And then Christ comes and it will be over. And we, the church, will enjoy the wedding feast with God, with the groom, with Jesus. Satan's bite might hurt at the present age. It might be painful, but we need not fear him. He's already been defeated, and judgment day is coming. But this text doesn't just tell us the fate of Satan and the false beast and the false prophet, but it also tells us the fate of everyone who's rejected Christ. And we come to that in our last point. Our names are written in the book of life. We can be fearless because our names are written in the book of life. Verses 11 through 15, we come to the final court scene. This is the end. This is the judgment. Verse 11 says that earth and sky will flee before God as he sits on his throne. Creation recognizes the maker. This is what we saw in in chapter or in, in the sixth seal, it says the sky will vanish when Christ returns. In the seventh bowl, we're told the islands, they'll flee. They'll run at the presence of God. When Jesus' holy presence comes, this earth will melt before him. I don't even know what that looks like. I think that's all symbolic for just saying it's being purified at that moment. Verse 12, we see that there's books that are open. This is very similar to Daniel chapter 7, where God sits on his throne. He throws the beast in the lake of fire, and he will judge all the worldly kingdoms. In verse 12, we see that everyone will stand before the throne, great and small. The words great and small have been used to refer to all unbelievers. They've also been used to refer to all believers as we made our way through the book of Revelation. What we see is no one skips this day. There are no passes. Everyone shows up here, and we see that death will give it up, the sea will give it up. No one is prevented from coming before this throne. Everyone of all time will stand before this throne, and these books will be opened, and our works will be made known, and we will be judged according to them. This doesn't mean we're saved by our works, and he's going to go, you did a great job. You made it. Ooh, you should have done more. Too bad. That's not the point. What we understand is our works will show who we serve. Our works will show, do we have faith in Christ or do we not have faith in Christ? And what we read in verse 15 are the somber words, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he's thrown into the lake of fire. This is not annihilation. This is not nothingness. This is eternal torment it's the fire that is never quenched in chapter 6 16 we read that those who experience it will be crying out we would rather be crushed by the rocks 
they will want anything but this wrath. This is the final destination of all who reject Christ. It doesn't matter what millennium view you have. We all agree there. This is the fate of those who reject Christ. So what do we do? We need to go to them. I think that's the right response. We read this and understand that this is the fate of everyone who doesn't hear the gospel and believe in the gospel. So what do they need? We need to go. We need to be relentless in our pursuit. If we saw someone in the road about to be hit by a truck, what would we do? We would scream. We would yell. If we're close enough, we would run. We would tackle them. We would push them out of the way. There's something much greater than a truck coming for people who don't know Christ. It's the full fury of God's wrath. How much more do we need to shout? How much more do we need to pursue them? We must go. And so one way that we read, I think, these last passages is just in that solemn way of realizing there's a weight, there's a, there's a destruction that waits those who do not believe in Christ. We must, we must go. But the other way we read it, I think, tells us how we go. Look in verse 15. We read, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So what does that mean? If your name is written in the book of life, what? You will not go to the lake of fire. Why? Because God's wrath was swallowed up for you. Where? At the cross? Because Jesus is what? He's the, starts with a P. He's the propitious offering. He's our propitiation. He absorbs God's wrath for us. And so what do we do? We have joy. We have excitement. We know there's no wrath left for us. Isn't that good news? Like this day, if you believe in Christ, you will never experience that torment in chapter 20. Isn't that good news? Chapter 19, when Christ comes and, and, and crushes everyone who does not believe in him and has the rod of iron, where he will crush their skulls and the birds will gorge themselves on the flesh. We have all of this terrible, gruesome, hideous language to letting us know this is what happens if you reject Christ. But for those who believe, what? We have joy. We have peace. We have everlasting life. Death has no dominion over us. We will never taste the second death. So what does it do for you and for me? It sends us out with great joy. We know the answer. Not that we're prideful. We know the answer. We're better. No. By grace, we've been saved. Now we give that message to others and we share it to all that we can this passage is meant to send the church out amen indeed it's meant to make us go we know the answer we will never taste this day not because we're black not because we're white not because of any race not because of any any social ethnicity or anything else because of the grace of Christ. So we go to all nations, all languages, all tribes, all peoples, regardless of color, social status, ethnicity. Why? Because we all can hear the gospel. We can all believe the gospel. And anyone who does will not taste that day. And because Jesus has said, go make disciples. What's the evidence that we are believers? One of those evidences is that we go. We can't get around it. The command is go, so therefore we are to go. And as we go, we make disciples. So as the books are laid open, he's going to open up and say, you're a disciple maker because you're a child of God. So are we making disciples? 
Is there evidence that our names are in the book of life? Let us not just be people who gather to debate about millennial positions. That can be fun, but I hope that's not what we do. Let us not just be people who store up knowledge and they come here and we have people in perspectives or BSF or all these 99 Bible studies that you can be a part of, which are all amazing and very, very good. But if we're not careful, we can all get very full of knowledge and yet very weak in our deeds. But all the knowledge of God is meant to change and transform us for the purpose of how we live. This knowledge is meant to transform the way we live. We know who our God is. We know the command. We know that all whose names are in the book of life, by God's grace, are saved. So let's go. Let's show that our names are written in the book of life and spread the news of the gospel that more people's names can be written or that more people would believe. What's going to hold us back? The only thing that will hold you back is if you believe more in the treasures of this world than in the treasures of God's word. That's what will hold us back. And I don't say that like, it's easy, just trust in God. Like, that's where it is. If we trust more in this world, if we place more value on our life now, getting the comforts that we want, the promotions that we want, doing the things that we want, rather than in obedience to Christ, that will keep us from living this out. But if we can make a prayer A simple prayer, a prayer, God, help me to live out the truths in your word more and more each day. God, help me to be a disciple maker. God, help the works that I do to be evidence of my faith. Not to earn my faith, but simply be evidence of my faith. If we can say just simple prayer, God, help me each day to live out these truths. And every day when we come to God's word, we can sit there and go, what truth did we learn today? Learn here, God is judge. There's great victory for those who believe in Christ. There's great judgment for those who do not. We learn those truths, those simple truths, right? So let's go and live out those truths. One way we do that is to share the gospel, to disciple other believers here in the church. So let's pray that the truths of God's word would be more precious to us than the things of this world. I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna invite the men to come forward and we will partake of communion.